Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, glad you guys are here this morning. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Stephen Obert. I'm the youth director here. If you come to Second Service regularly, you don't see me usually because I'm over with the students already uh, and having all sorts of fun with their shenanigans. So uh, I'm also part of the teaching team here, uh, and I get to be blessed to be the one that brings the sermon on our psalm this morning. The psalm that I'm preaching from today is a prophetic psalm. It's the psalm of the suffering Messiah. The reality that this psalm was written nearly 600 years prior to the incarnation of Jesus and carries such details about his suffering is truly amazing. There's been a lot of uh, back and forth over the title of the psalm that David wrote. Uh, in the original Hebrew, it says, To the chief musician upon a jaleth shehar, a psalm of David. And, and some scholars have said that this was referring to an instrument that was often used when sudden mourning would be taking place. Some say that it referred to the hind of the morning, which referred to the morning sacrifice. Uh, and some even say that the title should, should mean the morning star as a direct reflection of Jesus as found in Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, whatever the case, uh, what we see in this title and, and what we'll see throughout this psalm is that there is a special significance in regards to Christ. Even if the title wasn't intentionally meant to do that, we will see certainly in the verses that this psalm is speaking of the Christ and of his suffering. Charles Spurgeon said in his Treasury of David, which I'm going to quote a few times this morning throughout our sermon, this is beyond all others a psalm of the cross. It may have been actually repeated word by word by our Lord when hanging on the tree. It would be too bold to say that it was so, but even the casual reader may see that it might have been. For plaintive expressions uprising from unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Before us, we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. O oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. That's quite a statement from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, with that weight, I'm honored and humbled to preach from this psalm today. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Lord, as we look into the work of your Son on the cross this day, may we be humbled. 
Would you fill our hearts with gratitude and praise for our Savior's finished work on our behalf? May we be ever more so disdained by our sin which placed him there. Thank you, Lord, for your provision of salvation through your Son. May those of us who have joined, sorry, may those who have joined us this morning, still in their rebellion, see the work done by Jesus and through your grace and the work of your Spirit be moved from death to life through saving faith in Jesus, our suffering Savior. Amen. Uh, for any of you who are familiar with my normal point-style sermon, if I were to do this sermon in a point-style, it would be like more points than I've ever done in a sermon. Uh, so in- instead of that normal style this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the passage verse by verse, uh, mostly one verse at a time, but uh, I'm going to combine verses in a few spots for time's sake. Um, I also want to say kind of up front that this isn't an exhaustive teaching on this psalm. Um, I would dare say it would be easier to preach a full sermon from each verse than to preach all of these verses completely in one sermon. It's just not doable. So um, before we get into the passage, though, I want to remind us of the gospel summary. The gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. This morning we will focus on this one true gospel. We're going to focus especially on the substitutional sacrificial death that Jesus died on the cross in order to glorify God and save his people. As we consider our psalm today, I want us to remember this gospel and and the God of this gospel, the one true triune God. With that, uh, if you don't have your Bibles open already, open up to Psalm 22, and we'll look at verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, if any of you have read the gospel narratives of the crucifixion, it's not hard to know what these words were pointing to. Upon the cross, Jesus cried out this very phrase, Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we can certainly consider that the Lord was quoting this passage intentionally. Uh, he, he must have known the words of this psalm well, and as he endured the sufferings of the cross, he surely must have been thinking of these very words. One thing that stands out here is this cry to God. Jesus says, my God, my God. God. Now this cry clearly displaying the suffering of Jesus at his final moments on the cross also shows us his great faith. The the hope with which he still declared, my God, my God. This is not the cry of a man who has lost hope eternally. Rather, 
This is a cry from the depth of agony to the God that Jesus still clearly trusted in and clung to. To declare my God twice was a clear reality that Christ himself was not abandoning hope. Rather, he was crying out to the only one who he knew he had hope in. Why have you forsaken me rings out so loudly that that it was often confusing for me growing up when I would read this passage. Listen to many sermons on this and and, and different teachings, and, and even in those, a lot of times people go too far or are just really unclear about what was happening. We have to consider the fact that since this has to do with the incarnation of the Son of God, there will be some mystery here. We can be okay with that. Why was Jesus forsaken? Because the full wrath of God stored up for the sin of all who are elect in Christ had to be poured out upon Jesus in this moment. This moment of suffering was that great suffering where the cup of God's wrath was drunk deeply into the Savior, the spotless Lamb the final and only true sacrifice for sinners. Many would say the Father turned his face away from the Son, and in a sense, we definitely see in the passage that that Christ on the cross was being forsaken. And yet, at the same time, the triune God was never separated. The mystery here is found in the incarnation, the human nature of Christ. Jesus, in his human nature, though he is completely and always after the incarnation, both God and man, not separate natures, not combined or blended natures, but two full natures, Jesus bore the turning of the Father unto bearing the full weight of sin and its separating effects in the face of the righteousness of God. At this point, all of those who were close to Christ had abandoned him in some way. Christ felt the suffering and loss of those who professed their utmost loyalty to him. But the Father turning his face away was too much. This is why we see Christ cry out to him, Why have you forsaken me? For Peter to run and deny Christ was no surprise. Jesus told him he was going to do it before it even happened. But the turning from the Father was more than Christ could bear, and so he cries out. It is not as if Jesus didn't know this moment was coming. Rather, in his flesh, he displays the reality that he suffered as we do. Christ Jesus was truly man, and yes, he truly suffered. Now the beauty of this is that because Christ suffered in this way, all of those who place their trust in him will never have to suffer like this. Christ suffered the Father's forsaking momentarily that we may not have to suffer the Father's forsaking eternally. Such was the worth and perfection of Christ that this temporary forsaking would prove sufficient for all who would trust in him to never be forsaken. Verse 1 goes on to say, Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? 
Christ in this moment turned to groaning as his words were simply not sufficient for the suffering that he was enduring. Have you ever suffered such great pain that moaning was all you could muster? Such was this great suffering of Christ on the cross. Verse 2 continues, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And Christ did cry out both day and night. In the dark hours of the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where all of his disciples couldn't even keep their eyes open, stay awake, while he prayed so fervently that he sweat blood, he pleaded for this cup to pass. And yet, Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus set the example of how to submit to the will of the Father, and he displayed the benefit of trusting and submitting to the Father's will. Even when the Father wills to crush us for our good. Oh, that we would have the same great faith in the Father through our trials. Trials that we must say pale in comparison to Christ and Him crucified. Yet here in the midst of this suffering, our Lord Jesus taught us to trust and to hold tightly to the Father. Then even in His suffering, He literally showed us how that must be done. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Have you ever been tempted when feeling as though the Father is, is distant from you and you're suffering to call God's holiness into question? It's, it's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not calling his holiness into question. Rather, what he does here ought to convict us to not do that. Jesus proclaimed, though you slay me, though you have forsaken me and are far from me in this moment, yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. This, this cry of affirmation can also be seen as a, a cry for help against the holiness of God. The, the son here on the cross, having earned nothing of this wrath, cries out to the holiness of the Father in a plea. Again, this was not done as if Jesus was questioning the holiness of God. This is not a, if you were truly holy and I'm blameless, then I'm, why am I suffering? Rather, what we must see and see rightly is that Jesus petitions God because of God's holiness. In our sufferings, we must never be tempted to call God unjust or unholy. Though we are encouraged to cry out to God on the basis of his holiness, for deliverance from such suffering. We should see this cry two ways. The Lord Jesus cries out to remind us that the Father is holy. And he cries out to plead against or petition to the Holy Father for deliverance from his suffering. Verse 4 and 5. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Christ declares that the Lord is faithful, that the elect of God, that the, yes, the elect of God can know, and we can know that this is what he's referring to here, because in this passage he says that these fathers 
trusted in God three times. So the elect of God, we see time and time again throughout history, God proves to faithfully deliver them. And Jesus is banking on this faithfulness, this faithfulness of the Father. He's trusting on God who is faithful to the fathers when they trusted him. And therefore, surely the unchanging God would deliver Christ from his suffering as he did the fathers of the faith before him. Now, perhaps you're thinking, but God didn't deliver Jesus from this suffering. He, he handed him over to death. And yes, he did indeed hand him over. However, the beauty of the gospel is that this death was only temporary. You see, the grave could not hold back the faithfulness of the Father to deliver Christ, nor anyone who puts their trust in Christ. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. For the undeserving sinner, what mercy we must see in this passage. Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, in the flesh declares he is but a worm and less than a man. Now this is obviously figurative language, but it makes a dramatic point and it calls our intention in. We see in the gospel recordings of the crucifixion that Christ Jesus was most certainly not treated as a man. He was despised by those around him. Just moments before the crucifixion, the Jews, the religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to love this Messiah, were crying out, crucify him. They despised the Savior so much that they accepted a murderer back into their community so that their raging against this Messiah could bring forth their desired penalty of death. How hard must this moment have been upon Jesus, the creator of all things, in his created flesh, feeling as low as any animal he had ever brought forth? How could the Son of Man be considered a worm and despised? He who created all was in this moment lower than all. You see, the mercy of God here to bring such humiliation upon his son is the mercy that God gives to save those who trust in Christ Jesus. Those who were truly worms at one point, wretched sinners who deserved to be despised and eternally punished for their rebellion against the holy God. God's mercy saves the true worms unto eternal life through Jesus' finished work. Verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver them. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Oh, the insults that the Messiah heard that day upon that wretched cross the mockers and scoffers who spit upon his naked body as he hung bleeding from his wounds, 
the thief who deserved the punishment he was receiving, angrily insults the spotless, undeserving Lamb of God. We see this happen in Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The son the second person of the triune Godhead, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his mouth, is here in the flesh, mocked by the very people he created. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the very men who should have seen Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah that they were to be looking for, mock him as he dies saying he trusted in God. Let God save him now. Spurgeon says of this verse, Here the taunt is cruelly aimed at the sufferer's faith in God, which is the tenderest point in a good man's soul, the very apple of his eye. They must have learned the diabolical art from Satan himself, for they made rare proficiency in it. According to Matthew 27, 39 through 44, there were five forms of taunt hurled at the Lord Jesus. This special piece of mockery is probably mentioned in this psalm because it is the most bitter of the whole. It has a biting, sarcastic irony in it, which gives it a peculiar venom. It must have stung the man of sorrows to the quick. When we are tormented in the same manner, let us remember him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, and we shall be comforted. On reading these verses, one is ready with trap to ask, is this a prophecy or a history? For the description is so accurate. We must not lose sight of the truth which was unwittingly uttered by the Jewish scoffers, they themselves are witnesses that Jesus of Nazareth trusted in God. Why then was he permitted to perish? Jehovah had aforetime delivered those who rolled their burdens upon him. Why was this man deserted? Oh, that they had understood the answer. Note further that their ironical jest, seeing that he delighted in him, was true. The Lord did delight in his dear son. And when he was found in fashion as a man and becoming obedient unto death, he still was well pleased with him. Strange mixture. Jehovah delights in him and yet bruises him, is well pleased and yet slays him. 
so well does Spurgeon say it that I don't need to add anything to this verse. Verse 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. There was never a time in the life of the incarnate Christ that he was not in faith. God showed his favor upon Christ even before his birth, but most certainly at his birth and in his childhood. Just consider Christ escaping the destruction that Herod had sent to Bethlehem in hopes to destroy him, his father being warned by God through an angel in a dream. You see, even then, the protection of the Father was over the incarnate Son. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Even in such agony, it would have pleased Jesus if the Father would have been not far from him. Jesus doesn't request that the Father be as close as he has ever been, as close as he has been eternally but that he be not far. Even the slightest closeness would have sufficed, yet God had to pour out his full wrath so that he could be both just by punishing sin and the justifier by providing salvation from this punishment to all who trust in Christ. A part of this wrath being poured out was a distancing of sorts from the Father To the incarnate Son. Verse 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. We see these bulls encompassing and surrounding the suffering Savior. The soldiers who mocked and beat the Lord, the chief priests and scribes who spit upon him and held false trials. The Pharisees who mocked him while he hung on the cross, oh, there were a great many bulls surrounding the Lord. And yet the heaviest of weight was that of the Father's forsaking. You see, these bulls were simply tools in the hand of the Almighty to bring about the death of Christ for the elect of God, so that all who will believe will have true life and being found truly hidden in Christ. Verse 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. The stretching of the body as it hung from nail-pierced hands and feet would most certainly cause many bones to be out of joint. The sure pouring out of the sun like water and his heart melting within him as wax only gives greater description of the depth of his suffering. His strength is dried up. His mouth is so dry that his tongue sticks to his jaw. And we actually see this in the Gospel of John, John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. What passage might Christ be fulfilling other than this 22nd Psalm? There are but two passages in the Old Testament that Christ could possibly be referring to. 
this one in Psalm 22, and the passage of Psalm 69, verse 21. They poisoned my food with gall and gave me vinegar to quench my thirst. The suffering of the Lord and the dryness of his mouth point to a a dehydrated state that he must have been experiencing hanging from the cross. And we'll speak more about that in just a moment. Verse 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Though it is already so clear, what else could these words be pointing to if not the Christ and his suffering on the Roman cross? At the time that David wrote this psalm, he wouldn't even have a category for this type of torture. It wasn't even practiced for hundreds of years after David wrote this. Historically, it wasn't even mentioned until hundreds of years later. Many believe this practice was invented by the Persians, but it was clearly brutally perfected by the Romans. Just consider the casting of lots for his garments. This couldn't be said about David. He never mentions it, and we have zero history to point to a time in David's life where his clothing was casted lots for. You see, the reality is that this psalm is certainly about Christ Jesus. John 19, verses 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, it was said that his mouth was so dry that his tongue was sticking to his jaws, said that he could count all of his bones. You see, upon the cross, Jesus was extremely dehydrated. Now, I waited to speak more on this until this verse so that we could see the the fullness of it. You could count all of Christ's bones because his skin was paper thin and it stuck to his body. The ones that weren't literally visible from the open wound of his flogging were clearly countable through dehydrated skin that just clinged to the bones. Church, the eternal Son, the second member of the triune Godhead in the flesh, was the aim and purpose of this psalm. Now, when we consider that, just just picture this. The saints of old were promised that a Messiah would come through the line of David. The very saints that would have been singing the Psalms would have been seeing what that Messiah was going to do to save them from their sins even before they fully understood what that was. This is so amazing. Because what we get to glimpse at in a Psalm like this is the depth with which God reveals His providence in making the future events come about exactly as he declares they will come about. 
down to the details of the soldiers casting lots for the clothing that Jesus had worn. If God would declare such realities hundreds of years prior to the event about the Son and his crucifixion, then ensure that they came about, how much more might we trust in God's promises to us? His promises are fulfilled in this suffering Messiah, and they are fruits of Christ's suffering to us. Church, God declared it and made it happen. His saying is his doing. When we see how clearly that happened through this psalm, we can shout from the depths of our heart with the utmost confidence, the utmost faith, that if God has promised good to us, we will most certainly have it. Verse 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Notice the faith of the sufferer. The continual going back to petition the Lord for deliverance. Trusting that the Father would, at the right time, bring deliverance, and even recalling past deliverance as a reminder, not unto the Father, but unto himself, that the Father has delivered before, and he is faithful. Christ even declares that God the Father is his strength. O you, my help, my strength, come quickly to my aid. And in the psalm, this is really where we see the tide begin to turn. Spurgeon said that the the following words of the psalm may be considered the thoughts of the suffering Savior after his physical life was finished on the cross. In any sense, the words being proclaimed would certainly still be proclaimed by Christ himself. Verse 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. The Lord is the singular focus of praise here. Even after the suffering and pleading for relief, the man of sorrows turns to declare praise unto the one true God. How many of you in here know this praise? How many of you have been under the heaviest of burdens and weights, near on the brink of death, to be delivered from it? Do you not sing out in praise when deliverance comes? Oh, how mighty our voices become when at some moment we might have lost them altogether. We sing so loudly when we have been delivered, we shout out our thanks and our praise unto the deliverer. And this is the image of what we get of Jesus here. Now standing in victory, being raised from the grave, he will go and declare God to the brothers and in the congregation. He will not be satisfied with a small audience, but he wants the whole of the church to know the Father and his deliverance. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Christ declares why we must praise God in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, 
but has heard when he cried to him. I'm going to quote Spurgeon one more time here because I just can't say it better than he does. Here is a good matter and motive for praise. The experience of our covenant head and representative should encourage all of us to bless the God of grace. Never was a man so afflicted as our Savior in body and soul, from friends and foes, by heaven and hell, in life and death. He was the foremost in the ranks of the afflicted. But all those afflictions were sent in love, and not because his father despised and abhorred him. Tis true that justice demanded that Christ should bear the burden which, as a substitute, he undertook to carry. But Jehovah always loved him, and in love laid that load upon him with a view to his ultimate glory and to the accomplishment of the dearest wish of his heart. Under all his woes, our Lord was honorable in the Father's sight, the matchless jewel of Jehovah's heart. Every child of God should seek refreshment for his faith in this testimony of the man of sorrows. What Jesus here witnesses is as true today as when it was first written. It shall never be said that any man's affliction or poverty prevented his being an accepted suppliant at Jehovah's throne of grace. The meanest applicant is welcome at mercy's door. None that approach his throne shall find a God unfaithful or unkind. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. This particular verse may be referring to the vows set forth in the covenant of redemption the very vows that find their fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus. Or, these vows could be the very ones that he made here in the psalm to tell the praises of God to the brethren and to the congregation. Either way, the Lord Jesus aims to keep his vows, as does the Father. And for the believer, this should simply warm our souls to know that God will keep his word. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The word afflicted here means humble. Those who see their sin and their desperate need for the Savior being spoken of throughout the psalm will eat and be satisfied. They will do this because as we know, The Lord alone can cause a man to be truly aware of his sin and turn to God in repentance and faith. Those who do, all who do, will eat and be satisfied. Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. All who are truly given new life in Christ see and savor the Lord as the treasure of their hearts. They sing out in praise because they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And they will not be alone in this praise. Verse 27 through 29. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The ends of the earth there mentioned do most certainly point to the elect of God scattered among the entire world. How great a song will be sung when we are gathered together with all of the beloved of God and sing with one voice the glories of the grace of God. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There's a day coming where all mankind will no longer be allowed to suppress this truth, but rather they will proclaim it. The elect will proclaim it out of saving faith and thankfulness, and the reprobate will proclaim it out of the terror of the reality of God's wrath. Verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The word posterity here means offspring. God will always have adopted sons and daughters to proclaim his name until he returns. These children of God should make it their duties, their business to share the gospel. They should proclaim God's righteousness to a people yet to be born. They shall tell this unborn people that God, God alone, has done it. He has saved his people from their sins through the death of his son on the cross. This is what Jesus says in John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Church, we have been sent to proclaim to the ends of the earth the true gospel message that it is finished. Christ has done it. How amazingly clear do we see these words in this psalm? Are you trapped under the crushing pressure of your sin and the conviction that you need a Savior? He has done it. Are you exhausted from fighting to obey only to stumble into sin again? It is finished. Are you trying to clean yourself up before you bow your knee to the one true God? He has shed his blood to cleanse you. There is no more work to be done. We cannot earn salvation. Salvation was never earnable by us in the first place. God is the author of salvation. And Christ has earned it for his elect. God has done it. It is finished. The salvation God brings to his people 
It's not an offer to be decided upon. It is a command to be obeyed and enjoyed. God has saved and will save his elect through this finished work of Christ, our suffering Savior. Why is the cross so dark, the suffering so deep, the agony so heavy? Because sin is so grievous and the punishment to justify sinners so great that the wrath of God poured out could not look any lesser. Do the details of the crucifixion cause you to to retreat or shrink back from its pain? Then I must ask you, church, I must ask you, believer, do your sins cause you the same thing? Are we playing too lightly with our sin? Church, it's the very thing that necessitated such a suffering from our great Savior. You see, my fear is that we, we read of this reality of the cross and we talk about it at Easter every year and we end up just forgetting how horrifying the cross was. In this We forget how horrifying our sin is. You see, when we have a small view of the cross and the suffering that was our Savior's, we then also adopt a small view of our sin. We have to see how wretched our sin is and how great a needed sacrifice we had to have to pay for it. My great hope in teaching through this psalm church to to the believer is that you would think upon the sufferings of Christ, that you would see Jesus' continual and faithful cling to the Father, even in the midst of that great suffering, that you would have a restored hope in his finished work, that we would stop playing so lightly with our sin as if it didn't cost Jesus his life to cover it, and as if it doesn't offend him still now. I pray that we would go to him in repentant confidence that he has paid for our sin, that we are no longer under God's condemnation because we are free in Christ Jesus. Christian, you're not just free from eternal condemnation, but you are freed from the enslavement, the curse of sin. My greatest hope for those of you here whom God has saved is this, that you would cry out to him who foretold what would come and ensured it came exactly as he declared it. Would you remember that this same God has promised that he will work all things, this is good things, this is bad things, horrific things, trials that seem unbearable, and the greatest moments of your life. He has promised he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Would you remember that he who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, will he not also give us all things? Church, rest in the sovereign and almighty God, for he has made these promises to us in his word, and he will, rather, he must keep his promises.
Christ was crucified so that the the Father's promises could be fulfilled. Not one drop of our dear Savior's blood will be shed in vain. God will keep his word. His saying is his doing. For those here who remain dead in their sin today, unrepentant and far from God by their own choosing, would you see what suffering God the Son endured to save sinners? Would you see that nothing, nothing was said of the sinner earning God's favor, but that the salvation spoken of was God wrought through God the Son and completely upon Him, not upon any fallen man. The thing that you're hungering for, that's keeping you, it won't fulfill. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God saves, and God saves through the work of Christ Jesus. Oh, would you see his suffering and turn to him rather than see your suffering for rejecting him. Christ died in the place of certain sinners because God is righteous, and each one of us has fallen short of God's holy standard. We could not do what Christ has done And therefore, none of us who believe get his glory. We humbly bow and say, it is by God's mercy that I believe. And we pray that you too would see the depth of your sin and offense against the holy creator of all things. We pray that you would be heartbroken for this rebellion and turn to God who graciously receives all who trust in him. Jesus died for sinners. Turn to him and live. Let's pray. Father, when we consider the the depths of the suffering of the cross, when we look to this psalm, a, a song sung by the saints of old, long before the Messiah appears, May we be strengthened in hope. May we be reminded of your faithfulness. May we be sickened by our sin and and fight to honor you in all that we do. Such great sufferings in our place, Lord, so that we wouldn't have to. It's, It's beyond our thankfulness. It's beyond our praise. God, I pray for the hearts here this morning who have not seen this great need they have to trust in you or refuse to to accept that. Would your Holy Spirit be at work? Would, Would dead hearts leave alive this morning, Lord? We're desperate for your work to do that. May the hearts of those whom you have given faith, whom you have caused to believe, who who trust in you now because of your work and your work alone. May they be strengthened. May we leave here praising your name. May we think much of you today. May we make much of your great name, Lord. May we pour out our lives to honor you and all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.